0: David, thank you so much for coming back onto our podcast. You're actually the first guest that we've brought back twice. So I think that speaks volumes for the kind of person that you are and the kind of value that you're bringing to our community, to our listeners, and honestly, to Katie and myself as well. So thank you so much for coming back. Um, I was just listening to part one and just a quick summary of what we get into. We talk a lot about your story, where you started, how you built your career. You never let your grades define you. We talked about what life was like back in the pit and the tremendous hardships that you had to go through with 9-11, how much value you're bringing to people now um, and bringing to people's lives through mentorship and giving back to the community. And so, David, what I want to ask you first is to talk a little bit more about what success means to you. You
1: know, it's so funny, a friend of mine just posted something and I'm ready to just smack across the head you know he says what makes you more successful than somebody else you know it's drive it's this and i mean these things i mean people are just get out of hand with this concept of success you know build your empire you know there's all these big buzzwords and it really just comes down to success is defined differently winning can be defined differently in many many different things right so success could be you know a guy that's you know that makes pizza but it's a wonderful father you know well That's successful because I know some people that made a lot of money that are terrible followers. And then there's success that can be measured upon how much money you have. Well, that's the worst kind of success to measure because, you know, you kind of, even when you're making money, there's always that you feel like you should do more. Um, But, you know, really what I try to explain to people is that success comes from a feeling of within. And if you stop listening to the rest of the world and to social media and to all the people with their buzzwords and, you know, hearing about how great they are. True success, you know, is, is not pushed out there. You know, I was with a friend of mine the other day. Um, he's worth $3.4 billion. And you would never know it if he walked down the street. You know, he, he would be in a T-shirt and jeans. He's a soft-spoken man. You know, he was a colonel in the Army Rangers. He was a West Point grad. He used to be the chairman of the exchange that I was under, under 9-11. Um, was Kentucky Derby winner, horse, you know, owns a national NHL team, uh, you know, everything. Uh, just told me what a Frank, he was so excited because he bought a Frank company, you know, for, for hot dogs, you know, that's for vets and all the money's going to the vets. But what you find with some of these most successful people, they don't, they're not sitting there on the mountaintop, you know, ringing the bell, look how successful I am. And, you know, it's, it gets a little bit of, maybe I'm old school, but it gets a little frustrating because when we were in the pit, and if we had a good day or bad day or whatever, let's say we had just an enormously great day. We didn't give each other high fives. You know, we didn't jump up and down. You know, we walked out, went home, took care of the family, came back and got our heads bashed in the next day. You know, so success, I think, is getting molded in, in a very unrealistic narrative. And I feel awful, to be honest with you, for your generation, because, you know, everybody say, well, I, am I successful yet? I mean, well, you know, are you a good person? Well, then you're successful, that's number one. If you're, you know, a kind person, well, you're successful, that's number two. If you're on the path that meets for what your version of success is, let's say you're an artist, like what we talked about, and that, you know, you sold a painting, well, you're successful on that. Um, you want to be a lawyer, you got to law school, you know, that's successful, you will be a doctor. You know, if you're, if you're moving along your path and not just sitting down and going nowhere, well, that's success. And it, it really, the pressure that's put on your generation by, you know, by some of these people out there that it's just, it, it's mind-blowing, you know, because I know people that could buy and sell them 10 times over, maybe 50 or 100 times over. And that's not the way they got that way. You know, they got that way because they worked hard. They kept their nose clean. You know, they didn't get into trouble. They had great morals. And they just, they just kept... the the vision and it was never about oh i'm going to be a success it was about this is what i'm going to do i'm going to build my business And by the way my business ended up being what people call success great but so you have to be very careful with that um and and that's that's the most important thing success and leadership is defined from within
0: that's that's so important to see because like you look at social media and it's all just a comparison You're constantly comparing yourself to other people like and it's so easy to to even look at like metrics we come up with these arbitrary metrics for what success looks like right like it's so easy to look at how many followers someone has and think that they're a success because so you know 80,000 people are following them then they must have something important to say that they must have built something but like so followers is just completely arbitrary
1: but if you watch that program i was talking about on hbo they they talk about how you can just buy eighty thousand followers and buy the box that respond the minute you put something up and you know if you spot check a lot of people with a lot of followers you just scroll down real hard and you punch it you'll see that a lot of them just like zero posts zero this they're all bots um and you're right success is like oh how many likes did you get? i feel terrible for the kids today you know, it was bad enough that if you rode in my day, if you rode by somebody's house and there were five bikes outside and they didn't invite you to go to the house, that's how you knew your friends were, by the way. You rode around the neighborhood to see whose bike was on, well, what was your best <laughs> friend's bike on your girlfriend's front lawn? You know, that's how that's how it was for us, you know. But there's such pressure on on your generation for this constant, on so many different levels, relationships, you can never get away from anybody. You know, we broke up with somebody or somebody broke up with us, there were literally times it was like, Oh, are they gonna be at the party? I don't know if I'm gonna get. I don't know if I'm gonna go. This, that, whatever. Now you know everything that everybody's doing all the time. Um, and in, in my generation, you never you never flaunted what you did. You hid what you did, and maybe two or three friends did it. You know, knew about it because you know what it was nobody's business. But now people are doing things so they can post. So the question is, are they really living their own life as they would live it, or are they living their own life as they want people to think they're living their life? And that's gonna end badly for a lot of people.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head there, David. Are we living our life to how people are going to respond to wh- how we're living?
1: Right. I mean, I never did that. I mean, when I would come off a CNBC or Fox interview, you know, I get a phone. I get. I said I don't know. How, I, I literally don't remember what I said. Like when I leave this, I won't remember anything. It's weird how that works. But I'll go back and I'll listen to it. Like I used to go home and watch the, you know, the interview. Like, okay, that was good. or That wasn't. Good. But I never. You know, it's fine. There was one time I was at Fox and some agent came over to me and and I was on, I don't know how many times I lost count on on all the stations. And she goes, well, you know, I can get you on anytime you want for 2,500. And I was like, well, you made people pay to come on the show, you know? And she's like, yeah, well, how much do you pay? I'm like, I've never paid. They call me, you know, because it's my way to educate. And and then I realize that people pay so they can put it up on their website so they can say that they were on. And you know what? That's not the same as, you know, listen, we have a problem. Is a problem in the market. Come and explain it to our viewers, um, you know, which is just totally, totally different. So again, it's like this whole false narrative. And I am truly concerned um, on your age group and my kids' age group that, you know, when you're in your 40s and 50s and all of a sudden things start looking a little differently and, the pressure is a little different, and you realize that it isn't really. It doesn't matter how great anybody thinks, as long as your kids look up to you and you've been a good parent. Or if you decide not to have kids, but you're a good partner, you know, and you're a good human being, uh, the message is very clear. And that's why, you know, like my son's off Facebook. He's 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 not really posting at all. You know, maybe a sunset once in a while. My daughter does it on Instagram about her artwork, even though she's a lawyer. But I was very happy to see when they pulled away. Because the pressure that's on you guys every day, it's going to take its toll. Um, because I was worried about developing my own life for my own life, for my family, for my ability to create. And I didn't give it, honestly, I didn't give a crap what anybody thought. I lost three bad elections before I got on the board. I mean, I got my ass kicked on the first one. I lost my eight votes on the second one. I lost my four votes on the third one. You know, and I didn't care that I walked onto the floor from 1,000 or 1,500 people the next day after I lost them. Okay, let's do it again next year. And I won three, you know, consecutives and I was on the board of the executive committee. But the pressure that's, you know, like everybody has to announce everything they do now. And I just feel terrible. The pressure is enormous for the people you educated and your, your age group. And you have to just be careful. That's all.
2: Definitely, I think now with social media, like our Instagrams, our Facebooks, are kind of like a mini resume. Whether that be a dating profile, whether that be a like resume for a job, so people are very, um, I would say, conscious and you know put a lot of effort into what they post and their brand yeah. or image as well.
1: But the thing is that most employers can see through the BS and know that it's not authentic. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're posing for every picture, like when I, you know, if we had a little Polaroid camera, it was a big deal, right? So we actually went to concerts and we weren't holding up our phone. We were watching the concert, right? Because people take the concert and they, say, hey, but really, like, how often do we ever go back and watch those things? So instead of, you know, taping it for like two minutes, as of JLo last year, it was, who knows what, I mean, it was a year and a half ago. Last year was done. Um, but I remember I taped three minutes of it. It was really cool. And then I put my phone in my pocket and I watched it. It's a whole different feeling when you're not standing behind your phone. Um, but you're right, they put stuff out. And you know what I tell the kids in my classes, I go, when you are gonna meet somebody, because I always say to people in my lectures, I I go, I make sure the teacher or whoever I'm lecturing to tells people that I'm coming and that they'll be able to ask questions. So I always say in my classes, I go, so who Googled me? And no one ever does. You know, who looked at my Twitter? Nobody ever does, who looked at my LinkedIn, nobody. And I'd say, "You realize you could have interviewed me before I got here. You know that that is a way to learn about some. You can see their Twitter feed to see what their comments are. you can learn a lot about them, Look at their Facebook, look at their Instagram, look at you, know, you can find people. And it's like interviewing them. Um, <clears throat> but again, you have to weed through the BS. But it's getting easier and easier to weed through the BS because the BS is getting so, so apparent. You know, it's you look at some of feeds, and I'm just like, sometimes I just scroll down. And I'm like, nope, I'm gonna hire that, I'm gonna hire him, I'm gonna hire her, I'm gonna do this. Because I know that it's, it's just BS, you know. So, but be honest and be yourself, and don't try to be anybody else, and then you'll get people's attention.
2: Definitely, I agree with that 100%. So David, we talked about what success means to you. Now I want to ask you about your biggest failure in life and what you learned from it. I think there's so much more value in talking about people's failures rather than successes because learning from people's failures is the biggest shortcut to wealth. That's the best like that rich quick scheme I know.
1: No, that's brilliant because to be honest with you, all my classes and all my lectures about my failures, I gloss over my successes. I mean, I never, I don't really talk about You know, because um, it's funny when I'm, and I'll clean this up for your viewers so you don't have to bleep it out. But when I get up in front of class, I'm like, what are you going to do more than you've ever done when you graduate? You're like, we're going to work hard. You know, we're going to do this. I'm like, no. And they're like, well, we're going to get married. And we're just, no. And I keep them going for like five minutes. And then they're like, what? I go, you're going to screw up more than you ever knew you could. You know, and it's how you screw up. Is that's the important thing? Is how you handle it, okay? and, the, and the way that I give these, I give different concepts and different things. Like in school, you know, I'll say, okay, you know, the, you're at, you're at home. The milk is on the center island, and you knock the milk over, and you see the milk go down, go on the go on the um, top, go down the side onto the floor. You go, you clean it up. Your parents never knew you spilled the milk, or the milk falls, and you literally take your arm and you stop it. You don't care about your clothes getting wet. Which person do you want to be? How do you want to handle that failure? And some of my, let's talk about one of my failures. My failure, my first, I had a lot of failures. I mean, when I was in, I went to a private boarding school my last two years of high school. And I remember walking down the street and they were interviewing me and they asked me how my grades were. And I said, oh, they're pretty good. All you hear from my father is like, David. I'm like, okay, they're not so good. You know, and the guy's like, you know what? I can work with that because he was embarrassed that he was failing. So I wrote a poem. I, w- I wrote a paper on the poem called If, which is my favorite poem, which we talked about. Um, I think it had seven periods and 11-page paper, you know, because I just, my grammar was awful. And they gave me a 45-minute, they didn't care. You know, what? I, I said, you have two choices. You can leave and go back to school on Long Island, or you can get two to three days a week to get up to our standards for as long as it takes because you're not graduating until you get there. And I said, no, you know what, I'm going you know, to stay here. I'm going to get tutored. And then when I went to Syracuse, I was one of the first people to graduate out of freshman English because you had to write a perfect essay. You know, so, you know, it's interesting. And that, So that was in high school and college. Well, one great college story was I had a company in college called Campus Promotion T-shirts. And I did every fraternity, every sorority. A friend of mine, Bobby, who was in Maryland doing the same thing. And my mother was um, married to an Olympic ice skating coach. So the national skating competition was going to be a Nassau coliseum. She's like, David, I think I can get you the t-shirts so for that. You could do the thousands of t-shirts. So uh, I'm like, great. So we put in a bid and we get it because we're so much lower than everybody else. We print the shirts, these long sleeve shirts with the stuff written down. And she calls me up like three days before. She says, David, I know your spelling sucks that you can't spell, but didn't you have Bobby proofread it? I go, yeah, I didn't even look at it. I have Bobby proofread because you spell champion without a P on thousands of shirts. It was champions. Okay. And we had our car picked out. We figured we were going to buy a new car. You know, we're in college. We're like, we're going to do this. We're making, we, we figured we would make $125,000 on this. And this was years
0: ago. Oh no. <laughs> the time value of money. That must be like what? 200,000 now?
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, and we're like, you know, and my mother's and I embarrassed my mother in front of the entire national skating committee. Um, so what we you know what we did was we got we got all the shirts back, you know, didn't hesitate, went to flea markets all over the place, sold the shirts for like basically our cost, didn't get too hit on it. And so there was a failure that you learned about you can have everything set up right and it could just like just knock your teeth in, you know. And then obviously my first election when I was Running, and I was one of the youngest. When I got elected, I was one of the youngest, or the youngest board member at the exchange. And I, I got my ass kicked. And somebody came up to me, i leave the names out, and said, "We, you're, 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 you're running against one of our friends, and we are going to destroy you. And this is the way it was at the exchange. It was a little different than you know IBM or whatever. So um, I'm like, "Well, don't you want to hear my platform?" i like 28 year old kid, you know. And they're like, "No." like, but I can do this, that they'll, you don't understand something. We are going to come after you with everything when we can. And then as I was, I was leaving. They said, but take it like a man, because I want you to get, and they gave me a message from the guy that was higher up that was doing this. He says, we just don't think you're ready yet. You're going against one of our friends, but when there is a time that we think you're ready to make everything we can to get you elected, you know? And I lost by 300 and something votes. It was like one of the worst defeats ever, um. And then, as I said, the next year, I ran again and I lost my eight votes. And then I ran again and I lost my four votes. Um, and then I had a continuous winning streak after that. But, you know, those were some pretty big failures, you know, to go up in front of the world. I mean, there were press releases that you're running and everything else. And when you don't win, your name is not on the new press release So the board, of the voice so it was, you know, as a 20, 30 something thirty-something-year-old kid, you know, that was, you know, that was a little tough to take. But you know what? It was, it was great. It was so, great. David,
2: what kept you going? Failure after failure. What, what helped you pick yourself back up and kept trying? Well, I had a really
1: tough father, you know, um, and he was always in my head, you know, which is number one. Um, but you know, I was kind of always like that when I was younger. I was taking drum lessons. Um, by a guy that you would never know and you would never know Buddy Rich but it was his arch nemesis they were the two big old time drummers of all times and I remember the, the teacher walking into the other room and saying to my mother he will never be a drummer why are you wasting your time on this okay and we walked out and a year and a half later I was lead drummer in the jazz band and, and the rock band and I was in other bands you know so that kind of started me off as oh, you going to tell me I can't do something, you know? And since I wasn't the greatest student in the world, but instead of being a great student, I was a great entrepreneur in college because I could prove to my father that I was lucky enough that he covered college, but I made sure that after the first year, I never asked him for any spending money. I just, I I created my own business. We did every, every bar, every sorority, everything on campus. And I sold the business to one of the bar owners, but just before I graduated. You know, so where I was a kind of a failure in school, I made it successful in another way. Um, and the most important thing about failure is that, you know, I was lucky enough to be out of one of 17 uh, traders that were brought down to Quantico to be studied by the top generals of the Marines. And yeah. we spent a lot of time down there, and they would just totally rip us apart. It was great, but they let us shoot. every. I'll send you some pictures. I'll send you to YouTube. It was great. It was that, as a reward, they let us shoot every weapon known to mankind. They put us in fatigues, the, the whole bit. It was great. And I remember I said to the guy, I said, I'm not going to quit. And the general looked at me and said, you know what? That's the problem. And I'm like, what? He goes, everybody thinks they're quitting. And he goes, there's a difference. And it was the best advice he ever gave me. He goes, there's a big difference between quitting and a strategic retreat. And my nephew, who I had lunch with this morning, who was an army ranger, and probably the only 150 pound army ranger ever because he was a tiny little kid but he's that shit nuts uh, the party you beat that one out that with a crazy nuts but that's how he got to be the toughest that he is but he's like yeah he goes everybody thinks that you know they hear that i'm gonna quit I'm not, I'm not gonna quit i'm like at some point you gotta take a strategic retreat pivot and decide this might not be the right thing rather than run it into the ground and run you into the ground and, and that's another thing with all these things you can see on the internet you know with these big sayings and, you know, all these, you know, it's like, I want to tell people just to stop it. Just be real, be human and keep moving forward. And so you learn with getting your butt kicked um, that it's not about getting your butt kicked. It's about saying, okay, I got my butt kicked. What can I learn from this and how can I move forward? And what I explained to my classes when I prep people for going into jobs, I'm like, you make a mistake, walk into your boss's office, and say, I really screwed up on this, but here's the solution. Don't ever walk in without a solution. And even if the solution is wrong, okay, that turned out not to be the right solution. I mean, listen, are you crazy? This isn't right. They will respect you that you didn't just walk in and say, we have a problem. They will respect the fact that you had an idea of what you thought might work and that you weren't afraid to say it. So no, I failed, I failed lot of time, you know, I mean, I failed on my weight issues. Um, since my accident, I've gained a tremendous amount of weight and every time. You know, it's funny. I was supposed to start diet on Monday, and then somebody asked me for lunch, and I go, What's like diet starting Tuesday? You know, so I couldn't even haul it together on Monday, you know. So um the failure to me is all like, I mean, I fail all day, every day. And because there's always things that we could do better, and you know, I've accepted that it's it's really as you said, which is brilliant for somebody your age, is that that's how you learn. You know i've never learned anything from one of my good trades period you know i've never i've never learned anything from one of my good speeches period but when i screwed something up or when i was tired and i didn't get rest the night before and i didn't do the speech as well as i would have liked you'll learn a hell of a lot so you don't do that again so that's kind of my concept on failure
2: A lot of people cut up my investing strategy for investing in the long term and investing in dividend paying stocks because they call it kind of like a boomer strategy. But after speaking to a lot of people who've been in the market for years, such as my father and him learning and, you know, losing lots of money, one of the biggest things he told me that he learned and what I take to heart is... You know, if he took all that money that he put into um, a lot of these SPACs or growth stocks, and just invested that money into you know long-term stocks and dividend-paying dividend-paying stocks, he'd be a lot better off today.
1: Oh, sure, and that's amazing that you saw that because you guys are from a generation—no offense—that has never seen a really bad market. You know, in the last ten years, it's every pullback has come shot right back up. You know, and one of these days, I tell these people, I say, it doesn't have to bounce. Everyone's like, "Oh, let's buy the dip." You know, That's, You know, there's a difference between dollar cost averaging and adding to a bad position. Okay. Yeah. I mean, dollar cost averaging—if the market comes off—but you look at the stock and like, "Listen, this was a sympathy play because of this, this, and this, and this came off," and I want to go into that because I think strategically the right place to buy it. I'm okay with that, but this dollar cost averaging BS has blown more people out. You know, like all the people from GameStop, well, dollar cost average from 400 down to 350. Oh, good luck to you on that one. You know, so, you know, people don't understand, but the fact that you look at this, you see, I was a trader as more of a trader than an investor because I was in and out. I mean, I don't know if I'm here, I have this trading pad here. Now this is just a quarter of what's left in the trading pad. So it was, it was this thick and I would go through four of these a day. Okay, and you see how on the lines, you know, all those lines, but we had trades on every every other line. So it was a different, it was a different experience for us. But to understand long-term investing is the most important thing that you can. And also compounded interest is probably the eighth wonder of the world. And yeah. don't oh, that, oh yeah. Right. And people just like the problem in today's society, is they want they want it now. You know, and so many people, because I mean anybody that made money from March on should discount that for the rest of their life. It, it means nothing because, you know, the question is Were you long before it and how badly did you get hurt, trade around your position and come back in. But a lot of people started investing, That's the way you hear about all these Robinhood traders, right? They started investing after the market got destroyed. Okay. So they came into the market at literally the goddamn perfect time in history of coming into the market. So then they make this money and they're like, wow, I'm a trader. I'm like, no. No, a trader is when they're trading both sides of the market, going up and down, An investor is somebody that's gone through the good and the bad and the good and the bad. And so I've discounted when anybody tells me what they've made this year, I just discount them. I'm like, this is not a real year, you know, um, but the long term strategy that you're thinking about, which is a very mature strategy. The bottom line is, is that if you're not going to trade all the time, don't pretend like you're a trader. Because it is, you sleep it, you eat it, you drink it, you, you think it all the time. I mean, I look, when, when somebody would give me change at the store, I looked at the difference of what I paid and what they're going to give me as a spread. Okay, I'm like, okay, so it's a 15 cent spread. I'm going to get 15 cents back. If I went up to the, you know, back in the day, when you went up to the, you know, pull your car through the toll and somebody forgot, you know, the thing and, they're, and all the cars are going down, like, oh, bad trade. Because I have this whole lecture, life's a trade. Okay, and life is a trade when you really think about it but you're long-term investing and you can sleep at night and you stop comparing yourself to others and you stop listening to the BS because anybody that tells you they're making so much money is probably full of crap. Unless you can say, I want to see your P&L, show it to me. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with your strategy. And most importantly, I teach that there are many different strategies of investing and trading. And the best strategy is the one that makes you sleep best at night. And because without having, you know, if you have a position on that you're losing sleep over, you shouldn't be in that position. So I like your strategy. I think it's a good idea. If
2: you
1: don't
2: don't mind me asking, David, what is kind of your investing strategy? Are you more long-term? Are you more- I am
1: actually, I am actually, the past couple of years, I missed a lot of the move. I was mostly in cash. Okay. Because I didn't, the market, there's nobody that trades that did that great the past few years because of the- the way the markets work. And you would have asked any normal trader, you know, long-term investor, whatever, that you could say that the world was shut down, that we were inside for a year and the market went up. Um, they would just, if you would have said this to me a year and a half ago, I would say, this is just not gonna happen. So, you know, I've done, you know, it's done very well in real estate. You know, there's something to be said about the real estate market. I've got bonds, you know, as you said, you know, you take your bond dividends you say, thank you very much. Um, I've got some, you know, I've got a very small um, section of very, you know, risky stock, right? That let's say, and it's tiny.
0: You're and if that money. stock,
1: but yeah, yeah, and if that stock, if that stock works and goes to the moon, I'm never going to look at myself and say, oh, I wish I had more. Like, no, you don't have more because you, that, you take your risk profile. You know, everybody's a big shot after the move, right? You know it's like oh I should have bought more of that I'm like yeah did you know that when you went into the stock and if you would have you know I love when people say oh it's a it's a three dollar stock but it's it's really worth fifteen dollars I'm like no if it was worth fifteen dollars it would be a fourteen and a half dollar stock not a three dollar stock you know so my my money investment is I still I still do more day trading when I trade and I'm not really I mean some of my stuff I guess I got probably some trades that might be older than you girls. But, um, and those are the ones that you forget about and, you know, in your IRA or your SEP or, you know, KIO or whatever. Um, and that was just managed, you know, so, you know, sometimes the best way to take your emotion out of the game is by having somebody else manage some of the other funds.
0: David, I want to ask you about how trading's evolved. Like you, You've you lived through a lot in terms of how much the space has transitioned, right? I remember once we we were talking about when you were on the board, you actually voted against electronic trading. So I want to ask you why you voted against it.
1: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I had a vote against one of my mentors as well. And he said, you realize if you go to vote against this, you're off the board. And I said, you tell the people on the trading floor the truth and I'll vote with you. I know it's gonna work, you know. Um, I also knew that it wasn't the swing vote because it was actually the famous vote is thirteen to one, you know, or one to thirteen. We voted backwards that time, uh, but it was. I had a couple of reasons. One, I didn't think the compliance was ready for it. I didn't think the structure of the market was ready for it. But most importantly, the board said that they were doing it to create an arbitrage between the upstairs electronic market and the trading floor. Now, on the board, there was only four of us out of the fifteen of that time that actually traded on the floor. Three of them came up to me and said, "I'd like to vote with you, but I don't want to lose my board seat." Okay, and I and the reason what happened was, I said to them, and "Go listen. We're going to turn on the machines, and within a year to a year and a half, this thing is going to be over." Okay, and if you want to go downstairs and tell all these guys that these seats that we're doing this for the IPO and for the, you know making money for the exchange, make money for the shareholders, I'm good with that. But do not go down there and have me go down there and tell them and lie to them and say, no, this is going to be good for you. Um, and they wouldn't change their mind on the message. And when I went down after the vote, I got ripped apart by some people. And then this guy that I know that since passed away got on the microphone in the National Ring and said, no, this guy, this guy stood up for us. This guy put his whole career on the line because he didn't want them lying to us you know, and then everybody started clapping on the floor. It was like, it was a pretty cool moment in my life. Um, but that was one of the- That's
0: reasons. what success looks like, David.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Right. You know, I mean, like when you can go against, when you can work so hard, I mean, I was at every major committee for 15 years and then I was on the board for seven years. And we said, listen, if you do this, you're done. And I said, it's been a great seven years, you know, and just let's vote. And that was it. And, um, you know, and, and I was very proud to do that. And you know, years later we discussed it because we started talking again and, and got friendly. With, you know, and um, you know, he understood my point of view. And I was like, listen, I couldn't lie to the guys in training. This is just not what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I can't, I can't morally do anything wrong in business to hurt somebody else. It's, it's in, in, you know, in the finance field that could be a tough thing. You know, but it was just the way that it was just by the way my moral compass is.
0: How do you feel about everything that's going on with Robinhood and, you know, the spotlight that they're under right now for exactly like the same situation, right? Not, they, well, they have a fiduciary duty that they're well, not upholding.
1: Well, they are and they're not, you know, and that's the thing that most people don't understand. When Robinhood made liquidation only, they were protecting their customers and nobody got that. Okay. Now this is a big if, okay. If they did have that $2 billion margin call that they couldn't meet, they did the right thing by saying liquidation only and by the way i got so much crap about this because i tweeted out for those of you old enough to remember this happened with gold it happened with silver it happened with copper it happened with mf global it happened with revco it happened with long-term capital it happened to all these companies this is not a new thing and then i got so much crap what are you calling a stupid you know i'm like no i'm just saying you weren't born for it. i'm just saying you, if you're not old enough to to know and the thing that most people don't realize is when a, when a clearinghouse collapses, if they get a call on a margin call, which happened with MF Global, um, and I was there. I mean, I saw what, I was literally living it. Um, let's say Robinhood didn't have some of the liquidation only stuff to take some of the margin pressure off of them. I mean, it's their fault that they didn't see it coming. It was their fault that they allowed the traders to get into that position on the risk management side. But at that moment in time, if they default, that, that they close Robinhood immediately that afternoon. And then what people don't realize, if you're long, you can't get out. If you're short, you can't get out. It could take weeks to get your out. People were locked out of their, you know, accounts for Revco and MF Global for weeks. I was talking to the CFTC commissioners and you gotta let these people trade out of their positions. And you know what? It's like, if I walk onto a rugby field knowing how, I, how to play football, and so the minute I walk in, I get pummeled. I just get like knocked out of my shoes. I can't look at that and complain when the guy looks at me, and goes, "You don't know the rules, you know." And what a lot, a a lot of the Robin Hood traders didn't understand was they didn't understand all the rules about how the how the margin is done, how the game is played, and you know. And listen, you know, to take a stock from twelve to four hundred, if J.P. Morgan did that, you know, there would be foul and manipulation call. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, there's no way that was ever valued. The reason why it came off like it did, and by the way, it would have come off without Robin doing that. Is yeah. What happens is, as we know, in any market, okay, it's like my bucket theory, right? You know that how markets go up more goes down. Think about a bucket on a, on a pulley with a folded wall of water and you pull the rope up it goes up, it goes up, it goes up, it goes up, it goes up. What happens when you let the bucket, the rope go? Bucket comes crashing down. Every down market is like that. So what happened is when you have only buyers and the minute that that turns sellers, that cartel kind of breaks, the first person starts selling, there was nobody in the world that felt that the buy, the buy GameStop at 375 or 325 or 350 was value. So there were just no buyers there, you know? So, so that's a, there's a lot more of that story where people should be upset about Robin is that they were fined $35 million because on their, on their uh, account things that you guys sign or they sign, it says that we will try to get you the best fill. Doesn't mean you have to get the best order execution. It says they will try. Mm-hmm. But what it was proven is that they got the worst order execution. Okay, because they, they dumped it off this, I think it was Citadel so on everything. They they got, they got, it was always the worst. They got fined $35 million, but they kind of continued to do it. So more people got hurt on bad fills than they did training. And maybe they, they should have been trading that stock. I haven't trained stock. Because you know, I'm like, this is just nuts. This makes no sense. So I, my friends and I were sitting there, we were trying to short the stock, to be honest with you, because we knew that this was going to end value. You, know, yeah. like, like, you know, it's like, you know, just there was no value. There. I can justify the value of Bitcoin where it is, but I can't justify the GameStop at $400. You know, because, you know, fundamentals do matter at some point. If not, then it's all just a dark, dark word game.
0: Yeah. Can we backtrack a little bit, though, because, David, I know you're super familiar with clearinghouses and how they work. Um, Can you give our listeners just a a brief introduction to them in case somebody was listening to that and completely lost? Sure.
1: Um, I'll explain the the commodity clearinghouse a little easier. So think about your clearinghouse as your bank. And every time that you do a trade, they charge you a small commission to guarantee the trade to the exchange and to process the exchange. So think about it as if you went to an ATM and you pay that fee. That fee is your clearing fee. And the way it's structured to protect the exchange, the stock market, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, is there's a ring of clearinghouses around the exchange to protect them from default. So one clear, there was a clearinghouse fund. And that if one clearinghouse defaulted. Let's say they had, for arguments say, $25 up, but they lose 30. Somebody's got to make up that $5 million shortfall. So all the other clearing houses have to chip in. So what people don't understand is that when a clearing house, when you're doing these trades, they have to have a certain amount of money up. And what they should have done was they should have put margin calls out for everybody the day before seeing where this was going. I think that it was an awful risk management job that Robinhood did. And most importantly, I always said that Sterling, my clearing house became like this behemoth that's a huge thing. Then at some point I would bring in somebody else to run it for me, because there's a difference between being a CEO of one size company. If you've never been CEO of another size company. And I just think that this guy stayed at the table too long. It was a deer caught in headlights and He didn't know what to do. You know, I don't think he was thinks that he was doing anything maliciously. Maybe he is, but I couldn't listen in his head. But when I saw him on the interview with Cuomo, I was just sitting there as a guy that knows this going, I've never seen such poor examples of answers in my entire life. And this guy wasn't, I didn't think he was fit to be CEO of that company. Um, Not that he wasn't fit to build it like he did, but maybe it was time to bring somebody that had a little bit more experience.
2: And while we're still on the topic of the stock market and commodities, I've noticed that there's been a shift right now from high tech to the commodity sector, for example, gold, silver, uranium, et cetera. As a former commodities trader, David, do you think commodities would be a good place to invest in now, given that inflation is on the horizon?
1: I don't think it's an inflation play. I think that's an old um, story, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, very simply that when, when it was an inflation hedge when my father traded it back in the early 80s, um, and when you had gold and silver as an inflation hedge, you didn't have you didn't have really the S and P's. You didn't have the options. You didn't have exotics. You didn't have the OTC market. You didn't have all the currencies. You didn't have the interplay between everything. So there only was gold and silver. So now there's so many different ways to protect against inflation. That you know, gold's moved. It really has been a channel. It's been bouncing back and forth. Silver was up a little bit, but some of that was also. You know, you gotta remember when my father was trading silver, it was $50 an ounce, that was an 80. So if if silver was at $50 an ounce and 80, where would that be on today's value, right? This is like 35 years ago, 40 years ago. So yeah, 40 years ago, it was trading 50. Think about it, if you bought silver 40 years ago, what is it trading today? Like 20 something? I'm not even sure.
2: Gold is around... Uh, 1,656 U S and silver's around 24 U S yeah. So
1: if you bought it in 1980, you would have paid $50 of silver, which is now worth $27 an ounce 40 years later. Gold was about six to $700. So in 40 years, you would have just about doubled your gold money in gold. So it's, they got, listen, they got a good press agent, you know, everybody's like, Oh, you know, we have inflation. Let's go to gold. I think there's many more products that that will be better however with that being said what you're going to learn over your life because you guys are pretty young right now is that the, the movie just keeps replaying and that's where some of, why some of the older traders do so well because they see a pattern that they've seen before so this is not surprising that okay now the texts are out so gold and the commodities are up there if you hear it on tv sometimes they'll talk about the cycles right and then Everything will be hot in commodities for a little while and then it'll cool off and then it'll go into another sector. And the older you get, the more you're going to look at each other and go, Oh, wait a second. I remember this. And that's why when the market was going crazy, I called up my son. I go, You watch everything. You know, I want you to watch the prints. I want you to watch how news comes out. I want you to watch how people react to it, how people overreact to it. You know, because he's 27 just last week. Um, and he's in finance, and I'm like, you're going to remember these patterns for the rest of your life, and you're not going to panic on certain things that will happen in the future, because you're going to say, I saw this already, and not only are you not going to panic, you're going to take advantage of it, and that's what I would tell your listeners, be patient, this movie plays over and over, like when crude was up too high, I knew that, okay, I was just waiting, Saudi's coming out with some statement, OPEC's going to come out with some statement, and then when it got too low, I was like, yep, they're going to do it again, so what you find is that you're going to see that this becomes deja vu more and more as you get older. And that will really play into you know, what you want to do. So for your listeners, really become a student of the market. And the market moves and has personalities like a real person. Market gets upset once in a while, market goes down, market's happy and the market's up, market goes into waves. Um, so there's all these different ways to look at it, but don't just get caught up with what's happening at this exact moment. Benjamin
0: Graham loves talking about the market. He calls him Mr. Market and how temperamental he does. So I just grabbed his buck.
1: Yeah, Um, no, no, I would say that, you know, and by the way, what people also don't realize is that I only traded gold and then I moved over to crude and I only traded crude because I became an expert in crude because I knew the emotional, the emotions of that market. You know, markets are like people. They really are an emotional ups and downs. So, some people I'd say watch four stocks for two years, become experts in those four stocks if you're going to trade. You know, these people that have 27 different positions, it can get a little overwhelming to be on top of those, unless you're investing and then you have to you know, spread out your risk. But if you're going to trade, there's nothing wrong with picking a few and really going.
2: If we're looking at trends and how history has repeated itself, I would say we're on the brink of a huge crash. If we like look back to the Venezuela uh, crash.
1: Yeah, I would, I I think the market, listen, this is just me and I'm not an analyst. So, and I've said this for a few thousand points, there's a, I I don't know why the market's where it is. Yes, it's got fundamentals and there's no place else to put your money and there's no place else to value in this, that or whatever, and all this cash is on the sideline but you know i think there will be a correction like there always is the question is is that after that correction you know each correction you have this huge spike up but there was a time that the market just channeled for a few years and it was boring you know and the question is your generation hasn't seen that yet the generation of traders haven't seen what literally it happened in crude we we're like we'd go after lunch for two hours because we knew that crude wasn't going to move You know, and there were, you know, we used to get around and go wait till after the election and then gold will get busy again. So, you know, this, I believe that I don't know if we'll get a big crash because the market's traded differently now than when I was younger. It's more funds rather than independent people and more electronic traders, uh, high high frequency traders and algos and, you know, computers don't panic like people do. You know, the, the emotional moves in the market aren't what they used to be. Uh, But, you know, listen, I I have no problem saying that I'm very light on on things right now because I don't mind missing an up move, but I hate getting caught in a down.
2: No, yeah, I think everyone does. I guess my last question on that would be, um, there's been obviously talks about um, a global and monetary reset. We just talked about the potential of a crash. Would you recommend right now for people to still invest in the stock market or are you more pro investing in physical assets instead?
1: Um, not that I can give advice on that, because you know, that's not what I do. But personally, um, I'm, I wouldn't have a problem doing a little bit of each, that's what I'm doing. You know? I don't believe anybody should go all in on anything. Okay, and then if you say you're gonna go all in and then it goes up, I have a rule that, you know, for myself and anybody that I'll talk to, I don't ever wanna hear you say, I wish I would've gone in more. Okay, because you're only saying that after the move has gone your way, right? And you forget about all the things that you thought about doing that you never looked at again that actually went against you, right? That's why paper trading doesn't really work because you, know, you never really feel the pain. So, you know, again, you know, singles, singles, singles. The problem is again, with social media, you hear about the people that hit a home run, right? And everybody's like, I can do that. Look at what they did. You know, I made X on Bitcoin because they have to announce it, right? um because they can't just keep it to themselves (laughs) and then and then you know you don't hear about the thousands that did the same thing and got blown out yeah Yeah. you know because those people aren't standing up and going hey i got blown out you know come look at me and the funny thing is that people would learn more from those people that got blown out and they will about listening to somebody that said they made all this money you know on a single trade it
0: takes humility and authenticity which we don't have nowadays right
1: no, um, <laughs> yeah. an act of civility and kindness. Um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a different world right now.
2: And hindsight is always twenty-twenty, David.
1: <laughs> exactly, you know, or as I say with my eyesight, twenty. So uh, <laughs> you know, so but you know, that's the thing. I never look back and say, oh, "I should have done this," or "I wish I would have done that," because it's, it's a waste of energy. And that's what the generals wanted to know: how we could lose sixty percent of our trades a day, maybe seventy some days. Um, and just keep pumping out the trades. They're like, well, don't you get upset? I'm like, there's no time to be upset. I tell people and people to invest in the trading and business if you sit there and, and you know, wallow in it and, oh, god, I, can't believe it. I mean, do a quick post-mortem on a, an investment or maybe on a business deal. But you know what? It's a waste of time, you know, to beat the crap out of yourself. Okay, because then you're just beating your crap out of yourself most of your life because there's very few moments in your life that you hit the home runs and very few Moments where there's fewer live times in your life when you hit the home runs, few times when you hit the triples, you know, sometimes when you hit the doubles, but you hope that you hit a lot of singles. Because at the end of the day, those singles get you around the bases, you know, and make you win the game. And the guys that swing for the fences and girls, yes, there's going to be one or two of them. And trust me, in this world, you're going to hear about it. But again, as I said, you don't hear about all the people that have blown out and are living in the basement with their parents because they have no money left because they tried something ridiculous. And it's a really hard thing for your generation because it's so enticing, and you know it's so flared up, and it's all—I mean, that's why that fake famous—you know—show on HBO was so great. It was an eye-opening thing that say, "Oh, this is all BS."
2: It's all about—it's all about FOMO now with our generation, as my dad likes to say. <laughs>
1: no, no, it's true, and that's gonna—that's gonna cause you to do things and make decisions for the wrong reasons. And I'll never forget the best advice that was ever given was by my father. I had missed a big move. So he, at that time it was one of the bigger moves in crude. I was a new trader. And I walked into his office, I slammed the door. I'm like, can't believe I was out for lunch. I can't believe I missed the move. He said, one, you're not supposed to go out for lunch. That was number one. He was supposed to be in the it. So I, I screwed myself on that. But more importantly, he looked at me, he says, David, let me give you some advice. And I'm like, okay. He says, there were big moves before you were born and there are big moves that are gonna happen after you die. So if you're going to get caught up on every time you miss a big move, you know, because you're going to be going to the bathroom, you could be on vacation, you could be on this, it will drive you crazy. There's enough moves for everything, you know, and that's the thing about the FOMO of your generation. Everybody's worried about what, what they're missing out on instead of focusing on where they are, you know, and where they, you know, it's like, I remember at my graduation from high school, he was quiet in the car, he was so pissed off. You know, and they sang the Billy Joel song. It's someplace that I'd rather be. And I'm like, why are you so pissed about that? He goes, it's not about where you'd rather be. It's where you are now. Concentrate on where you want to The message that they were sending was wrong. Like, dad, you're taking this a little bit to heart. It was just a song. But I got, as I got older, I understood what he was talking about. If you're always thinking about where you're going to be, you're never going to get to where you're going. And that's part of the problem, you know, that we were going to bring up about entrepreneurship, which is a whole nother thing, you know, craziness, what's going on. Well, you can work in somebody's business for 10 or 12 years in your early 20s and your early 30s, learn the entire business on, you know, as going to school and then become an entrepreneur rather than saying that 22, well, I have to have my own company. I have to have this, I have to have that because you're missing out on a whole education that you could get by. It. What I did was, I mean, my son, he just worked for Cantor Fitzgerald for three years, you know, under the CEO. Then this then he's now he's going to his MBA now he's gonna work for a major bank for maybe five or ten years because he wants to open up his own fund one day. And I told him, You you're a great trader, you you really know, but at 23 years old or 27 years old, you walk into my office and tell him, tell me, Do you want to open up a hundred million dollar fund, I'm gonna throw you out. You know, but you tell me after you've worked at Canter, gone to get your MBA and then worked at either one of the big banks, that conversation I will listen to later on. You know for anybody and that's part of the problem people aren't putting their dues in um and that's gonna come back to haunt everybody I think
0: David yeah, it's like you knew I was gonna ask you about entrepreneurship and how to how to be an entrepreneur in somebody's business I was gonna to talk to you about those um single single hits that you were talking about the singles instead of you know going for a home run everybody wants to hit a home run right now everybody wants to start a business in their 20s but you know most successful entrepreneurs are in their 40s or 50s even
1: yeah, we've all worked for somebody else. You know, we've all gotten crap from somebody else. And we've all, you know, been the one that had to be in the office at one o'clock in the morning to see if, you know, the, the copier was fixed, to bring the copies to the boss first thing in the morning. You know, we didn't complain about it. You know, we ordered a pizza. And we just dealt with it. Uh, we were, I was talking to one guy today when the exchange had some problems many years ago. They literally slept on the floor of the exchange for two weeks. Didn't go home till everything was worked out. And the thing that people always understand, I used to get such a kick out, of I used to go to the WeWorks, you know, in New York and, you know, write me out and some kid would give me their card and they're like, I'm CEO of my company and my best friend CFO. And I go, hey, what do you do? We pre-revenue. Like, oh, really? Okay, like, what's your business plan? What's this, whatever. And I'm like, okay, you wanna go into advertising Go work for an advertising firm for five years? Well, no, I wanna work for myself. I'm like, why? I said, what I teach my students is when you work for somebody, go in there like you own the place not the attitude that you own the place but like you actually own the place and when you sit there and you're sitting at your desk your cubby or wherever else you're sitting right look around and say oh the assistant to that person what do you think he or she gets paid and how would i afford to pay that on the business um they got the coffee maker over there i gotta pay for that um oh we just saw this half our customers just left how did my boss handle that you know, and what it does is it allows you to really learn. Like, okay, if this is my business, what would I do? And it allows you, rather than walking in, which a lot of people do, it's just they walk in, and they punch the time clock, and they walk out. Okay, become a student of the business that you're in. And if you become a student of the business that you're in, and then in time, you know, you guys have things that I don't have, and my father doesn't have. My father's eighty one. What does he not have that I have? I have more time. You guys have more time than both of us. I would do anything to be your age in this world right now and still take the path that I took because I know where I could be even further along. And that's the thing. and this whole thing that everybody, out there are certain people online you know, on that are like, "You're not happy, quit. You know go out and do what your passion is like, you know what? The greatest advice that I was ever given was my first day at the exchange. And I was in Chicago and I was this cocky Muslim 23 year- old. And I walked into one of the biggest traders he's put me down on the, in the floor as a runner. I and mean, you can see the trading form we're in the business gallery. And I walk in, I'm like, I'm gonna be your best broker. I'm gonna be this, I'm gonna be this and this. And he looks at me and says, David, just sit down and shut up. I'm like, what he says, you see that exciting floor down there with the people screaming and yelling and the excitement and then you know the rush and you know the energy. I'm like, yeah, he goes, one of these days you're gonna walk in, it's gonna be a job. You know, it's because you're not going to want to get smacked in the head. You're not going to want to get spit in the face. You're not going to get an elbow in your ear. You're not going to want to hold the guy up or the girl up behind you. Okay. And you're not going to want to sit there and scream and have you broke by the end of the day. It's going to be a job. But you know what? You're going to learn a lot and you're going to be able to provide for your family. And you'll be able to, you know, if you decide to you know, follow certain paths, there's more things you'll be able to do. And that's what I think is is really lacking of today's world. That you got to pay your dues. And when you're paying your dues, it's a wonderful time to learn. Um, and this isn't like some older guy who's saying, you know, like being jealous, you know, this is just saying this is the way it does work. You know, I always talk about, with, you know, like my daughter is an artist, she's, she's a photographer. She graduated New House and said, you know, I don't think I'm going to make enough money to survive because I don't write the checks. Uh, you know, I said, you, you know, I said the same thing that my father said, I'm not here to get you wealthy. I'm here to teach you how to create your own wealth, you know, and she ended up going to law school. And you know what? I got to be honest with you. She now looks at herself and because we talked about it, like the waiters in the restaurant that I'm part of, look at themselves as waiters that pay for their acting career, right? Which is great. Well, she's a lawyer that now pays for her photography career, you know, but it's about putting the foundations in place. Because what so many people don't realize now is that this is all great. It's great what a lot of people are doing. But the question is, do they ever sit in bed at night and say, listen, when I'm 23 and 27, I can do this. But when I'm 45 and I have a family and I've got kids or I've got a mortgage, a big mortgage, you know, or I am now older and I don't have as much energy, have I put together a foundation That will allow me to then keep my family where they need to be, because I can't tell you. I mean, I learned it with myself. I had a hockey stick as far as my wealth compared to my friends. The hockey stick went straight up. Because trader, I made it faster, I made it harder, I made it, you know, more. I was ten or fifteen years ahead of everybody. Then what happened? We went electronic, so my income, you know, went down and and plateaued. Right? You know what my friends with that have businesses are? now they're all at that level they can sleep at night their businesses throw off money you know and you know where i'm looking for new things and new boards and you know which is great i love it don't get me wrong but you know what i have conversations with them and we all ended up in the same place but i got lucky because trading was so lucrative and then when it went public it was like a lotto ticket right and i'll be the first to say that um but create a foundation and that's what they're not teaching in schools and that's what not they're they're not teaching online and you know, where I look at it as entrepreneurship, I think entrepreneurship is great. I was on with 103 of them from Broward County. I run, I help run the program there. I talk to people all the time, you know, and I tell them, and by the way, all these entrepreneurships, the people that are in the contest to get the prize in Broward County in Florida, are all in their 30s and late 30s and early 40s because they and they all say to me, Well, I've worked for this, I've worked for this company, it's time for me to do it now, right? Um, and they had the experience. Because again, you're gonna hear about the few people that did great, but you don't hear about all the other. And I'm concerned that there's gonna be a generation of unemployable people um, when they're 35, because let's, put them, let's just call the numbers. It has nothing to do with the people. You know, 99 out of 10, 99% of startups fail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the 1%, or let's say 10%, whatever the number is, um, only 25% of those are still in business in five years. So the, the, the scale is so you know it's so stacked against everybody to begin with so what's plan B so plan A for our generation was you build you build you build you learn you learn you learn and then you become an entrepreneur right but you had your plan A you could fall back on so somebody a lot of these people have it backwards now so what I would tell you know you and your listeners like I told my own kids that I am I was the cool but strict parent and my kids will tell you that right um, It was all about building a platform and a base. Um, And then when you have that base, like my daughter knows that if she wants to go do photography, I said, listen, I don't care. She ended up getting a scholarship for law school. I said, I don't care if you ever practice, but you always know you can practice. You can always put a a shingle out and say, I'm doing a state doing this, that, or whatever, but always have something that you can go back to. Um, I think it's very, very important. And that's where people are... I think there's a false narrative on entrepreneurship and they glorified it. Um, you know, and there's other people that I won't mention that do real estate that glorifies it. It's just like sit there and I laugh. You know, with a bunch of this stuff. Um, but it's hard work. You know, and it, it's okay if it's not for everybody. And there's no shame in that. And I think people with the social media and everything else are finding, I think there's more misery and self-doubt because of all the fluff on social media. And people, you know, I said it to somebody in the clubhouse the other night, I said, you know what, you got all these rooms that everybody's talking how terrific life is, but what about the, you know, 50 out of 300 people that it's not that good and they're saying, well, what about me, what, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, you're not doing anything wrong, you just being realistic, life's not great all the time. You know, sometimes you get your teeth knocked in, sometimes life is really tough. And it's, it's, that, it's that foundation as you get older, that, you know, like your father saying that he got beaten up, you know, that he lost money. Well, that was, that's what made him into the person that he is today, you know? And, you know, that you're in your house and you, you should ask your parents. It's like what I say to my kids in the class, I go, how many of you have been lucky enough to slow grandparents? And they raise their hand and go, well, the older old? like, oh, yeah, they're so old. You know, they're historians. I they go, for all you know, my grandmother, from what I hear in her 20s, she's the one on top of the bar, drunk, dancing her, you know, away, probably with a blouse half off. Right, and you don't realize your grandparents were you at one point.
0: I was just gonna say, dancing on top of the bar that sounds like me and Katie when we're seventy.
1: Right, you know what I mean. And and that's the thing, though. I always say, you. I said when I talk about my to my classes, I said I have something that you don't have. I remember what it was like sitting in those chairs. So ask me how I got here. You know. So I have these kids go to their grandparents on the holidays, and I say, tell me what you learned from your grandparents. One kid's like, oh, I didn't know my grandfather who can barely walk was a track star. And the reason why he can barely walk is because his knees are so messed up from all the running that he did.
0: And all of a sudden the discovery like,
1: oh, I better prepare because I am going to be them if you and I tell them if they're lucky, because not everybody makes it to get old. You know, getting old is, you know, a privilege. It's not a right, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And they look at life differently. And what I try to do with the younger generation is have them look at life a little differently, but also with as much hope and admiration that you should
2: I try to have as many conversations with my grandma now, but my grandparents when they were alive and as much as you learn from them and their hardships and what they went through, it's also a little hard to relate to, right? Because of their circumstances. Like my grandparents grew up in war. They grew up, um, let's say in poverty and stuff like that. And brought up as a Canadian citizen and first or second generation, I grew up in a different time. Right. And I'm more privileged, So as much as there are so many lessons to be learned, it's kind of hard to conceptualize when-
1: Oh, absolutely. But what you can do is when you think you're having a tough day-
2: You think back to, this is not-
1: You know, like to be honest with you, I yelled at some person here during COVID because he said, he goes, oh, it's so scary. You know, and I'm like, we live in a country club like with backyards and pools and having food delivered, right? He goes, Oh, it's so scary. I'm like, don't tell you that to your relatives that were under the floorboards in Poland when people would come in and shoot up the floorboards and they would move it over so the bullets wouldn't hit them. That was scary. This just is is just not good, you know. Um, and what if you can keep that perspective, um, because there's a tremendous group on every generation now that finds something to complain about, right? Um, I like that one thing this, this woman wrote an article, I think she was your age. And she was going to be originally, you know, that how things suck, right? Mm, yeah, um,
0: we talked about this one. Yeah. And then this, she's sitting in the Starbucks.
1: She's in the Starbucks. She goes, wait a minute, I'm on my laptop. I'm, I'm drinking a $5 cup of coffee. I'm able to write this blog. Blah, blah, blah. She goes, you know what? If this is bad, this is nothing compared to how the rest of the world looks at that. And I think that we're we getting a little unrealistic on what that is, you know, and that you need to, you need to, you know, take a breath and realize that. As messed up as things are right now, it's still the best place to be on the planet.
2: very true. And I liked um, how you said earlier, you were talking about your daughter and how she wanted to become an artist, but you encouraged her to have something to fall back on and to continue to practice. One of the biggest pieces of advice um, my dad told me growing up as a woman specifically is no one can ever take away your education. Absolutely. They can take away way your riches your fame um you know you can,
0: um, you can get canceled
2: you know, your relationships can break off but one thing you'll always have to fall back on is your foundation and your education and that's something i really took to heart and i think a lot of people should take to heart and just remember and there's all that.
1: different ways to get the education you know if you have to go to community college go to community college you know there's all different you know, yes, maybe not going to Harvard and Yale, but you know, I, I know a lot of idiots that graduated from Harvard and Yale. I know a lot of people from community College that did awesome, you know, and and that's that's important. But like I was in this room the other night, that you know, should you invest your $1,400 stimulus check? And I'm like, no, that's not what it was meant for. It was meant to get money back into the economy. I'm like, how about you invest in yourself by taking a course that somebody teaches, you know, about to become better at whatever you're doing, or give it, you know, I said, if, you, if you're, if you need to, if you want to invest that, give it to a family in need. It. I said, that's not the point of this whole thing, you know, but invest in yourself in education in any level now that you can do it online. And there's, there's a price point for almost everybody, you know, and listen, there are people that can't afford it. And that's why I donate a lot of my time for junior achievements, you know, and college fund and all these other things. But there's ways to achieve it if you want to find it.
2: Yeah, it doesn't have to be education in the traditional sense, but no. now the internet and Google and YouTube, you can learn almost anything on YouTube. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I say to somebody, I go, you asked me, did you Google it yet? You know, I go, I'm getting three sources from Google. But, you know, I remember I said to somebody, listen, we had to get a book in the library, we had to do the Dewey Decimal System, then go find where the book might be, only to find out that some idiot put it in the wrong shelf <laughs> right, and spend two hours looking for it. You know, we didn't just get to push Amazon or Audible and have the book down. You know, so, but you're right, there's so many different ways for education. Um, and you just, you have it right at the tips of your finger. You know, it's almost like when the matrix came out, you know, they, you know, if you ever saw that movie that, you know, they put a computer program in the head, it's like, wait a minute, I know karate. Well, you have the matrix on your phone now, you want to learn something, Google. Look at, as you said, look at YouTube. You know, you can learn all about Bitcoin on YouTube. You can learn all about, you know, um, exponential, you know, whatever on Bitcoin. Uh, on, on YouTube, you can learn about You want to build a boat? Google it on on YouTube. You know, you want to become a hairdresser? Do it. Uh, but yeah, spend the time to be educated because nothing comes easy, right? Um, it's, except for some few that really knock it out of the park and you'd be surprised how many of those, you know, overnight successes are not such overnight successes.
2: Mm-hmm. I, le- I learned how to change a tire off of YouTube because my awesome. dad, my dad wouldn't help me, he's like, you have this youtube go i'll give you the jack i'll give you everything if you need my physical labor i'll help but go youtube it and figure it out
1: <laughs> how How is is your father if you don't want me asking
2: he's 58
1: so he's basically a year and a half older than me right a year and two months i like him and i've never met him
2: <laughs> i i told nika before this um Podcast started just by looking at your Instagram. I'm like, you remind me a lot of my father, and that's no, and,
1: and and it sounds like he brought you up like I brought up my kids because both of you were very strong, independent, but thoughtful and multi-dimensional thinkers. I mean, you've asked me questions, you know, between this interview and the last interview that I've been on with some top top interviews. Me. You know, I mean, this is one of those things that should build up confidence in you guys is that when you can do what you're doing and peeling the onion back on people and, and asking good in-depth questions, well, there's a skill. That's, that's part of your foundation, by the way, because they'll never be able to take that skill away from you. And that, if this, what you're doing now doesn't work, you'll be able to go to a marketing agency and say, hey, this is what I did. I interviewed some of the top people. This is what I, you know, I learned and this and that. So you guys are building up your base by following your passion at the same time and how, how terrific that is um but that's that's very cool so um i think it's great i mean it's like my son was dating this girl and her father was just like wealthy off of another level you know and i remember she came in this was in high school and her phone was broken her screen was broken so i said when are you going to get a new screen because my father says i can't get a new phone until my i my renewal is up in, in a year and you know what that kid is one of the most down-to-earth kids i've ever met you know, and that's why if you if you raise your kids in a way like your parents raised you guys, um, to be thoughtful, to take this responsibility, like you know when you guys said, "Can you push it back an hour or up an hour?" I never get that right, by the way. Okay, and it was seven. You took the responsibility to say, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm going to reach out to David. I'm going to see if he'll move on his schedule because this works better or whatever for us." That took some guts, and don't underestimate it. Okay, because that is this rejection that it could, you could have gotten back like, what are you wasting my time for? You said, you said, eight. I planned out my whole day, blah, blah, blah. But you don't know what's coming back, right? So the fact that both of you have put yourself out here to the, to the masses like you have. Okay, and I'm not going to do a whole vulnerable thing that everybody likes to start crying online about. It's not that kind of vulnerability. It's it's about being vulnerable, of getting your teeth knocked in by having somebody say to you, what are you doing? Um, those are traits that will help you for the rest of your life i used to say that i could talk to the people that i could talk to because my father was so tough and i was around such big business people and important people as i was growing up That i was like if i could talk to him i could talk to any people like how can you go in there and talk to these people like this like he's not as scared as my father you know it's simple <laughs> as that you know I mean, you know, I, I literally made a million dollars one year trading and he looked at me and I said, are you proud of me? And he said, well, if you didn't screw around with me. That's my dad. And I'm like, okay, you know, the better from crap still isn't good, you know? So, um, so yeah. So I'll tell you father, This is over with me for a drink. But, um, but yeah, you know what? So don't underestimate what you guys are doing now and how that's where your confidence should be building up for the rest of your life that you'll look back at this that you can reach out to somebody like me and other people that you've reached out and put yourself out there. Because you know, I could have gotten on here and said, you know, What are you guys asking these questions for? This is, re- I'm not going to just, you know, you don't know what's coming on the other side. And that takes guts.
0: David, thank you so much. I appreciate all your kind words and you just you being on here. Like we've learned so much from you from this episode and the one before. Um, you, you've shared so much wisdom with us. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.
1: Well, as I always say, the way that you can repay me is that when you have grandkids, look at them when you're 75 and say, "Yeah, I talked to this guy. You know what? He made a difference. And then I'm good. Pay it
2: forward, too.
1: Absolutely. Always pay it forward. You know, and you can always do that. And you know what? And what I also tell people is that you can be a mentor at any age. You know, it's like I tell the kids in college, don't be surprised about what you can do for that freshman walking through the door, not knowing where to go. You can either make fun of them or you can, you know, sit in and say, okay, let me get you through this because that's the first step to leadership and life is, you know, leadership is, as I said, comes from within and it's the most important thing. And, And now, you know, like this friend of mine that always says to me that had me teach at West Point and these other schools, he's like, listen, you need to talk to the future leaders of this country and make sure that they get to where they need to get to. Um, because there's a lot of noise out there that's, um, pulling people away from the focus of where they need to be. Because again, it's like what you said, like, I never thought about how many people like me. You know, I never thought about how many friends I had. You know, I just, I had my group of friends, that was it, you know, and that was it. Um, there's so much outside pressure on, on the girls right now, and the, and the boys of today, that it's, it's hard. But, you know, the certain people rise above, and make that foundation that we talked about, and build upon that foundation. So when you're 40 and 50, I know a lot of guys that worth a lot of money, and then trading stopped, and now they're they're broke, you know. And these were they were making millions of dollars a year. Um, but what I did when I was at the exchange, I always figured trading was going to stop one day. So that's why I got involved in the politics of the exchange and running the clearinghouse and learning my education in many different parts, um, and that helped me get to where I am now. And of the things that I'm doing now, because I wasn't just I wasn't one of the traders that walked in, traded in life. So it's all part of the bigger picture. You got to put your time.
2: I think just to wrap this up, but one last thought, and I think resilience is probably the best quality someone can have, because if, you know, the stock market doesn't work out or your business doesn't work out, just being able to pivot and being able to, you know, pick yourself back up. Um, and keep on going and trying, moving on to the next thing is what's gonna get people to where they need to go.
1: No, like from the
0: poem, if, right? If if it all goes to yep. shit, basically, it's what are you gonna do?
1: Yep, you read that poem, if, you know what I'm saying? Your father might know it, okay? My father gave it to me, I gave it to my son. I put it on my father's wall. I made a, a whole thing when we started trading. I teach to all my classes, I make everybody read it. I'm like, if you can, if you can live your life according to that poem, um, as corny as it sounds, you will be a success. And, and that's the most important thing.
2: We're going to end it off there. Once again, thank you so much, David, for coming on again to our podcast. And we can't wait to have you on in the future. And to everyone else, until next time. Bye, guys.